Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. This is my mission, and I will complete it. Well, thank you, Mr. President, and we choose to accept our mission as well. Hello, and welcome to Mark and Sarah Talk About Songs. I am your co-host, Mark Blankenship, and with me, resplendent in the regalia befitting the 41st president of the United States and all of his <laughs> compatriots, it's Sarah D. Bunting. Hello, Sarah. Hello. I'm not sure if that means that I am wearing what I would have been wearing, which is one of those ubiquitous Benetton rugby shirts, or um, something with giant shoulder pads, or if I'm falling down an elevator shaft. Who knows? In any <laughs> case, hello. Diana Moldar style. <laughs> hello. Great. Hello. Hello, listeners, and welcome to our Beats Around the Bush season. LOL. Um, how did we get here and what are we doing? Uh, well, we're not totally sure what we're going to be doing the whole time, but here's where it started. We wanted to do a radio hip hop season of um, just like party jams that you used to bug out to like in carpool or in your dorm room or wherever, kind of between 85 and 95. So we made a big list of songs and it was like, well, were these radio jams or does it count if only I love them and I want to bring them to the listenership um, and nothing ever charted here? And what is our framework? So what we realized is that most of the songs that we wanted to talk about came from the era of the first Bush presidency, 88 to 92 ish. Um, some of them are from before when he was vice president. So we're counting it and they're all rap and hip hop. So beats around the Bush. This is either my greatest pun triumph, or I need to fire myself. Maybe it's both. Who can say? But basically, we're just talking about these amazing, joyous hip-hop songs that we love, some of which disappeared randomly. Others, you may never have heard of them. Others, you've definitely heard of, but we're just going to go on a journey with them again. Uh, we're not totally sure what our episode list is going to be because some of you on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash mastass are going to help us figure out what we're talking about later in the season. But that's where it began. Mark, anything to add about our general uh, brief, teehee brief, before we get into what we're specifically digging in on today? I will say that I mean it as a compliment when I say that Beats Around the Bush is such a stupid title for this season. <laughs> yeah, but stupid, like in the hip hop sense that it's stupid yes. good and a question mark? No. <laughs> I just feel very I just feel very liberated that that's what we're calling it because it just sets the table for how we're going to be approaching this whole project of this mini season uh, and I'm ready to just get loose and get funky. If I mean, you you're you're always funky in my heart. <laughs> That's because I use natural deodorant. <laughs> so so do I. <laughs> it doesn't really work, but we work. <laughs> oh no, who am I kidding? I use I basically just use actual aluminum that I <laughs> dig from the ground and rub into my body. <laughs> but anyway, those squeaky sounds that you hear are 
sheets of tinfoil in his armpits, ladies and germs. That's exactly right, ladies and gentlemen. So on this first episode, well, let me back up and say this. So basically the way we're structuring this season is that for the first few weeks, we're going to do an episode that I bring to the table, then an episode that Sarah brings to the table. We'll go back and forth doing that for a while, and then we will start to do some episodes that come from you, the listeners. And if you are a Patreon patron, you should keep your eyes peeled for questions from us that will help us shape our listener-guided episodes. Uh, And I'm going to be kicking things off in Beats Around the Bush with an episode dedicated to what I am generally calling hippy dippy hop for yeah we called it hippy hop when i was in college yes it's so i love a group of songs that were popular from the late 80s until 93 uh and technically george hw bush was president for the first few days of 1993 so it counts um they are unified by their general relaxed vibe they have very different uh, lyrical top themes. Some of them are quite serious. Some of them are just about having a good time. But they all tend to have a very mellow energy. Uh, by the 93 period, they also include a lot of jazz samples. Uh, and they really represent a very different fork in the hip-hop road when compared to the gangster rap fork that Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, Ice Cube, all of those guys were... Uh, uh, traveling down and i think it can be easy when we look back at the era of late 80s early 90s hip-hop to only tell the story of gangster rap and to forget about this type of music just in the same way that when we talk about early 90s rock music we can talk about grunge as though that's all there was and we forget about um rem and Ten Thousand maniacs and uh the gin blossoms uh and i i just I'm excited to kick off this season by looking at this group of songs. For those of you who have been listening to this show for a while, perhaps you won't be shocked to learn that I really like these songs and that this is definitely my uh, go-to hip-hop lane for the early 90s. But, I, you know, as Popeye says, I am what I am. So today we're going to be talking about uh, De La Soul's Me, Myself, and I, Arrested Development's Mr. Wendell, Us Three's Cantaloupe, parentheses, Flip Fantasia, PM Dawn's Looking Through Patient Eyes, and Diggable Planet's Rebirth of Slick, parentheses, cool like that. So I hope that you are wearing a velour shirt. I hope that you were wearing glasses with some sort of colored lens. Mm-hmm. And I hope that you are ready to feel good even as you think deep thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> Get out those Zubaz and a hacky sack. It's time to go. <laughs> So, Sarah, I'd love to start um, by just talking about who the, the song Me, Myself, and I by De La Soul because I really feel like this particular song is the progenitor of this entire sound. Um, this is a song that came out in the late 80s, and fun fact, it is the first ever Top 40 song that was only available on cassette single and not on a 45. Wow. Do with that what you will. And... um. Uh, let's before we go any further i think we should get ourselves into the whole vibe of this episode by listening to a clip of me myself and i by de la soul god yes let's do it mirror mirror on the wall tell me mirror what is wrong can it be my de la clothes or is it just my de la soul what i do ain't make 
Ugh. I, I have mean, a serious question for you, Sarah. Serious yes. question. Is it possible when this song is playing to be in a bad mood? Uh, no, it isn't. <laughs> I mean, I came into this in a pretty good mood because I've been psyched about this season for like four months. But um, if I weren't in a good mood, uh, I would be in one after just 34 seconds of that song. Um, here's my only issue with preparing this episode is that while I was listening to that song again, which like I've heard it conservatively 7,000 times, but you know, listening to it again, hadn't heard it in a while and could not get out of the album. Could not get out. It was just like skipping around on it, listening to it, realizing I could still recite the entire, like, you know, the little game show breaks. Yes. And like, yes. That, that I sometimes say things from the from the game show bits like as like just conversational filler or like responses to things that I don't think I even realized I was either doing it or still doing it. Like anytime someone says freaks, that that's my excuse to be like, just like your mama, because blood sucking freaks, <laughs> just like your mama. And uh, sometimes I'll come into a room and be like, how you doing, Al? Um, I like Twizzlers. I mean, I can't, I can't stop doing it even now. That whole album, top to bottom, is so, it's like a giant shaker knit sweater of nostalgic joy for me. And I remember like buying the cassette of the whole album and putting it on and just being like, this is, I mean, this is perfectly done. I'm having so much fun and you can hear them having so much fun. And it's such a relatable, like, I don't know that they're just like, this is what we do and we're doing it 115%. And if it, it becomes a like mainstream success, great. And if it doesn't, we're going to just keep doing it. And that was really appealing to me and still is wonderful to me. I, I completely agree with you. One of the things that I love about this song and their whole vibe from this period is that they were very much rebellious, iconoclastic hip-hop artists, but they weren't, as the kids would say, pressed about it. Yeah, they, uh-huh. they named their album Three Feet High and Rising, which tells you that they're baked. They're not mad, but they're also not going to do what you tell them they have to do to make the music that they want to make. And there's something that's so appealing about people who don't get that upset when they're ignoring your rules. They just I just find that kind of confidence very appealing. And it is so much fun because they're not worried about impressing you. That leaves them free to just have a good time. And, and you know, this, is, this whole record, Me, Myself, and I, is a boastful, braggadocious record. But it doesn't sound like what I feel like we're trained to think a boastful, braggadocious record sounds like. They're just, they're like, yeah, my spectacles are cool. My point of view is cool. And you might think I'm a nerd, but I don't give a fuck. And then like Q-Tip is just like, he has like one line, black is black. And it's like, he's on the track for like three seconds, but it's unmistakably Q-Tip in such a wonderful way. And even though they don't necessarily give a shit what we think they give a shit what they think 
Um, yes, it's the, good. Well said. They don't take themselves that seriously, but they take the making of this music extremely seriously. And if you listen to any track on this album or really any of their albums, like there is some just sort of like C plus fuck around interstitial shit on other albums. But if you listen to Say No Go and like any 30 seconds of Say No Go is so dense with allusion samples um the way that samples are like uh, either pitched up or down like sped up or slowed down um the the things that they're the things that they're doing like 360 on a, any given track on this album are like i mean you know yeah it's fun but it's also not like unprofessional the you know the teacher's not here and we're just gonna get baked and watch a film strip like this is right. good work product so yeah that's exactly right it is that it is that idea of I, I love what you said they don't care what you think about them but they care what they think about themselves and mm-hmm. they care what they think about the world and they take themselves seriously enough as artists to want to do a good job and that this is clearly, like you said, it's not just a lark. It is, this is the worldview that they wanted to create. And it just happens that the worldview that they want to create is kind of a loose and relaxed party that uses samples as a way of paying homage, but also building this really new soundscape. And, you know, again, all hip hop is rooted in the idea of sampling, but this is just a different way of using sampling to create a different type of, energy and to tell a different type of story. And I think that's really cool. And I, I also am reminded, as you mentioned, Q-Tip's one line, that he also shows up the next year in Delight's Groove is in the Heart for that guest verse. Uh-huh. And I love the idea that for whatever reason, Q-Tip was just always at the Brooklyn party <laughs> where they had a studio <laughs> set up in the back and he would always just be walking through with a cup of hunch punch at just the right moment. And they would be like, yo, 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 Q-tip, Q-tip, come here. And he'd be like, oh, okay, hold this. And he would just rap and then he would leave. And I just, I just love the image of Q-tip happened to be there. And he just did this and left. <laughs> yeah. Or that these groups would be like, it's like two 30 in the morning. They're like, Oh my God, I just can't with that. Like we're blocked. We don't know what to do. So they would put like the bat signal, except in the shape of a Q-tip on the side of a building. And he would look out his window and be like, Oh, yeah, that hold on. I, I've got my pajamas on, but give me one second. Yeah. <laughs> now, talking about this whole ethos, the creation of a sort of relaxed style, the use of hip hop sampling to create something that feels uh, more textured and sensuous than perhaps right. uh, other artists were doing, leads us quite directly to PM Dawn, who I would argue are obvious. Uh, descendants of De La Soul, even though their album only came out like two, their first album only came out two years later. But um, PM Dawn at the time got a lot of flack from the hip hop community because they were considered soft. And Prince B, who was the lead rapper and primary songwriter of the group uh, that he was in with his brother, DJ Minute Mix, uh, sampled Joni Mitchell songs and George Michael songs to make his music. He didn't, he sampled um, 
pop and folk music that wasn't necessarily cool in or or, or uh, embraced in the way that uh, other hip hop samples were. He talked openly about Jesus. He talked about weeping and crying a lot. Things that artists like Drake are doing now. EM Don were doing decades in advance, and it was very, very, very um, frowned upon. And famously, PM Don or um, Prince B said in a magazine interview that he thought that KRS One was not a good role model, even though KRS One framed himself as a, a teacher for his listeners. And then KRS One rushed Prince B on the stage of, I think it was at an award show, but it was after some performance, and he knocked. Prince B down. And so there was this whole thing of like the hip hop community rejects PM Dawn, but PM Dawn continued to make music. And for quite a few years, they continued to have hits. So they are the first artist to have a number one in the sound scan era uh, with set adrift on memory, memory bliss, which samples true by Spandau ballet, hardly the hardest sample that you could have chosen. No, then they had a hit with the song, uh, I Die Without You, which reached number three. That was from the Boomerang soundtrack. And then in 93, they released this song, uh, which reached number six on the Hot 100. And I remember so clearly playing when my grandfather drove me back from the regional spelling bee, which is neither here nor there. But this is a sample. uh, This is a clip of Looking Through Patient Eyes, a song that samples Father Figure by George Michael and features pop diva, Kathy Dennis on backing vocals. So here we are, number six hit, looking through patient eyes. I think I'm close, but I stand so far. The turbulent one sheds a turbulent tear. I miss the love only because they stop. Oil and water, lust and sympathy are life and death my way through the sun. Where originates all the pain that leaves my memory a traumatic sponge and sinks to you. say i can see clearly in retrospect is that the reason i loved pm dawn that i set up learning all the words to this song and many others is because this was hip-hop music that didn't make me feel like i was going to get the shit kicked out of me for being gay i can like just it's so clearly in retrospect the place that hip-hop and in fact all of the songs we're talking about today were places where as a gay kid i could listen and not feel afraid in a way right I loved this music for the very things that other artists and other people criticized it for. And this song is so lush and it's so queer in its way. I don't even think Prince B was a gay or queer man, but like the album art was just so like over the top and there's just something so extra about all of it, but I loved it and I love it still. But I wonder, did you know this song before this week? I don't remember it at all. Um, if you say it 
charted. Obviously, I you know believe you, but I I just <laughs> it did. I swear. I I um have absolutely no reason to um confront you with an incorrect chart fact, um. But I have no recollection of it, and this was this one was a little hard for me to um get a like get purchase on because I feel like this is one of those cases where the sample is doing so much of the work um mm. like excellent choice of sample on their part but um this did feel a little um reliant on work that um George Michael had already done mm. with that said i think that pm don definitely was this i mean I love that you said that this felt like it was hip hop that was not going to get you, uh, that was not going to see you harmed. Um, because it's really interesting to look at PM Dawn specifically sort of trying to be um, at an intersection of hip hop and the R&B of the era or mm-hmm. um, like sort of proto New Jack stuff, which was definitely much more about like, very het fucking mm-hmm. right so this is much more sort of like spiritual there's like it's coded for intimacy but not necessarily physically it's like spiritual and emotional which i think um the culture in a lot of ways still is not ready for um men to be vulnerable about intimate feelings Yes. So especially in like whatever, 92, 93, if your choice was like John Seda standing in a carport with his shirt unbuttoned, singing about how much he loved you, which actually meant I want to bone you or Michael Stipe, who weighed like 110 pounds with angel wings on being like, everything is terrible. You broke my heart. Like these, these intimacy codes were, um, not uh adequate maybe for the full range of human expression right and i can see how pm don would have caused anxiety in other artists um and like i i think that whenever artists are called soft or cheesy or mall music or whatever like sometimes that's a legit critique but usually it's it's a reactive anxiety and um, yes. that PM Dawn would absolutely like I don't think anybody was um, under the impression that George Michael was actually making out with these models that were already that were always in his videos. Um, so for PM Dawn to embrace this very recognizable sample and stick very close to the architecture of the original sampled song is uh, quite brave and both not innovative and very innovative. Yes. But like the song itself, I'm kind of like, eh, okay, like I'm, I'm, I see what you're doing and I'm glad you did it, but I don't necessarily need to listen to this one again. You know, it's interesting because I can remember very clearly being excited when this song reached the top 10 because it felt like PM Dawn bucking the odds because yeah. the backlash had already begun against them when they released this album and they leaned even harder into the baroque sensuality of their look 
And I don't know if you watched the music video for this song. Mm-mm. Well, Prince B is wearing a black lace uh, veil and wearing a giant shirt that says Jesus on it, while Kathy Dennis walks around in another veil holding a lit candle. Like, there's just, it is so extra. And in the album art, and in the album art, he is in a long blue sarong sitting on an orange sort of sandy looking wave pointing longingly at the sky. I mean, they are not trying to make it less queer and there is also a song on this album called the bliss album but then it's the bliss album with a question mark at the end the bliss Uh album uh where they sing a duet with boy george okay and it's like a sad beautiful song and all of the lyrics you may have clocked in this they're just all like eighth grade poetry in fact i'm gonna tell on myself I wrote out the bridge of that Boy George duet and pretended like it was a poem I had written and then showed it to someone in eighth grade. Well, <laughs> look, middle school was a um, was a dicey time. It was. I don't know why I did that. It is inexplicable to me why I would pass that off. I was I was writing my own bad poetry. Why did I have to take PM Dodds that day? I don't know. Anyway. Point being, this is, uh, I totally get how it might, if you're just hearing it now for the first time, or maybe you heard it and it just made no impression on you, also possible, that it might not be your jam, but it arrived in my life at just the right moment, and uh, I'm here for it. Now, I've, I'm i not mistaken, you do remember Mr. Wendell from Arrested Development, is that correct? I definitely do, and it's, oh my god, it's so of its time, uh, but... I mean, I don't think I'd heard it in 25 years. <laughs> and it was, yep. I mean, it really was like a college reunion in some ways that you're like, oh, great. And then once you've gotten caught up with the song, you're like, okay, see you in whatever, 2045. Like, <laughs> kind of all set. Do you want to um, hear a arrest- clip or do you have comments first? I'll give you some some background first. Arrested Development is the first rap act to win the Grammy for best new artist, um, which they did in, uh, 1993. This is the third top 10 hit from their first and only hit album whose name I can't ever get right. It's like three years, four weeks, three, two days in the life of, or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, the first hit was Tennessee with Dion Ferris, who we recently talked about in the Lilith season singing the hook. Tennessee is a great song. That's Dion Ferris. Dion yes, that's Ferris. Dion Ferris. <laughs> Follow the uh, bouncing had, ball and not Sarah. It's Dion Ferris. The, then they had a second hit called People Every Day. Um, but what the, I just felt like that Mr. Wendell really epitomizes for good and for ill mm-hmm. the whole Arrested Development thing. Yes. Uh, so that's why I felt like it was the perfect one to choose. This song reached number six, just like Looking Through Patient Eyes. And uh, in case you haven't heard it, it is a song in which Speech, the leader of Arrested Development, raps about a homeless person that he is looking at on the street, and here's how that sounds. 
Now we really civilized, yes or no? Who are we to judge? When thousands of innocent men can be brutally enslaved or killed over a racist grudge. Mr. Window has tried to warn us about our ways, but we don't hear him talk. Is it his fault when we've gone too far and we got too far? Cause of him we've walked. Mr. Wendell, a man, a human in flesh, but not by law. I bid you dignity to stand with pride. Realize that all in all, you stand tall. Go ahead, Mr. Wendell. Mr. Wendell. Speech is vocal is so wonderful. Um, this, I don't think this seemed as preachy at the time because I was, you know, 20. Yeah, <laughs> preachy was where I was fucking getting my mail because you know, um, and like in '92, this felt much more like matter of fact and um, almost journalistic, and yep. compared to say Natalie Merchant slash Ten Thousand Maniacs output of the time, it it did feel like you could have a conversation with speech about this story versus being you know lectured so that was great i hate to spoil your homecoming but baby brother you should expect me to i mean and this guy brother man have two like it, this is just such a friendly vocal speeches timbres um like sexy but not like sexy just like uh, it's a nice timbre it's very agreeable and um uh, you know this like it's a it's a good beat. It carries you along. It's, it's built really well. Um, but this is a group that had a spiritual elder that was listed in album yeah. notes. Like, this is what you're dealing with. Accept it or don't. They're, they're <laughs> doing this thing where they're like, not just a group, they're a lifestyle. And you're like, yes. Mm, okay. Yes. Good. All right. As long as no one's like tithing to this guy, I'm sure it's fine. And even if they are, everyone's adults. Everyone is adults, but this song feels like it was written by an eighth grader, which is what I was when it came out. Because there, I, I love, as we've often discussed on this show, I love this song like a family member because <laughs> it is so, it is so naive, but presents itself as being so profound, and I. <laughs> exactly remember that that's how i was and yeah. oh yeah. i just i love it for that but, but the, the lyric that i can i did not have the s- excuse of being in eighth grade at this time but i was uh, a <laughs> sophomore so <laughs> so sophomoric it's right there in the name mistakes continued um, to be made all over the shop so i can remember very specifically later in my life hearing the song again and hearing the lyric i, I didn't clip it but there's a lyric in the song that goes his only worries are sickness and occasional harassment from the police in their chase. Uncivilized, we call him, but I just saw him eat off the food we waste. And then we get to where I picked up the clip where he's like, maybe the blind man is the one who truly sees is basically well, what he's saying. I do like Mr. Wendell has tried to warn us like the way that that line is delivered and it, it still sustains today. I would say Mr. Wendell but, has tried to warn us like, yeah, he he did repeatedly but what i would say is are a homeless person's only worries sickness and occasional harassment because i can think of like 55 other things that you have to worry about if you do not have a home but Mm. when you're just trying to make a point that is using 
homelessness as a prop, then sure, that's as far as you have to go. And you're like, but you know what, speech? A for effort. Uh, I Nobody else was... That's not entirely true. This was also the era when uh, uh, Crystal Waters reached the top 10 with Gypsy Woman, She's Homeless. So yeah. this was an era when... And, and also Tracy Spencer had the hit This House, which is about homelessness. So this was a period when there were just a lot of top 10 hits uh, about people needing housing. Uh, Janet Jackson's State of the World, another one. Right. So, um, and, I, you know, kids running away from abusive homes, kids not yes. running away from abusive homes. Like, this was definitely the, like, the messaging was there. So this is actually one of the ways that I have such great affection for Generation X, of which I am just barely a member we tried to be earnest and solve problems in our shallow sophomoric way. At least we tried. At least Soul Asylum had that runaway train video with the pictures of the missing kids in it. Yeah. You know, it's like w- there was an attempt to do, to sort of carry on the spirit of the sixties. And I think that the, this period gets, um, that's that aspect of this period gets erased in the easier story about how it was all about irony and disaffection. Like those things were there, but that irony and disaffection was in this constant conversation with this earnest belief in change and this belief that somehow MTV and our music could be the pathway to that change. And just as we were also staring at the sex in the 90s segments that were about the empty soullessness of fucking in New York City, we were also watching the Rock the Vote concerts and thinking, yeah. Tori Amos can help us make the world a better place. So that's why I really have such affection for this song and the whole thing it represents. Yeah. And, you know, Andrew Shu started a whole, you know, foundation called Do Something. And it was like, yeah. okay, I roll, but like he, he did it. He tried it. Like, I don't think anybody really had to tell Andrew Shu, you're not so good at acting. Like he, he has to have known. <laughs> right. And like, we, isn't it is it isn't it better for speech to make a rather clumsy argument about homeless people being wiser than us in many ways? Isn't it better than not talking about it at all? Like I, I just feel like at least it's I, I I have a lot of respect for someone who has who, who makes the attempt. And like sure, Arrested Development never made any songs that were not socially conscious and that can get a little tiresome, but like, you know, throw one in there from time to time. Great. Yeah. I mean, and you know, I think they also, this part of their, um, sort of history is sort of blotted out by the fact that people every day was in every fucking Toyota commercial for like five years. Right. And then that sort of, um, takes a soft left into, um selling out and the preoccupation that is i think um very gen x about doing it or not and what kinds of doing it are okay and blah 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 blah. and then you're talking about grunge which we're not here to do we're here to talk about hippie hop right well and that actually leads us quite nicely i think into diggable planets another very socially conscious hip-hop group that utilized uh, jazz samples in their music and also were much denser lyrically. And um, the members of uh, 
the diggable planets, as is especially apparent in this song, aligned themselves with something called the 5% Nation, which is a black nationalist movement founded um, that's influenced by Islam. And it has a lot of very complex religious and sociopolitical ideas. And they were like really going for it in their songs. And some of their other songs that uh, were on the same album that featured uh, Rebirth of Slick really get into questions about like women's right to choose and like societal power structures and things. So diggable planets were taking the things that arrested development and to some extent P and Don were doing, and they were taking them even further lyrically, but I didn't know any of that shit at the time. I just knew that I really liked this song with the cool beat. So this is a great example of a song that went right over my teenage head uh, and wasn't really written for me. This song is was written to, I think, exist in two ways. There's the audience like me that was never going to hear the messages and was never going to be part of that community. But then there was the audience that was already thinking about the revolutionary ideas that they were thinking about and was going to feel seen and celebrated. And you know what? Good for fucking them. I feel like if this, uh, if the Diggable Planets had existed in the '60s, they would have been on the FBI's watch list mm-hmm. because they had they have ideas that I think might be considered threatening. Mm-hmm. But great, okay, cool. And again, in the early '90s, you could make a song that sounded as smooth as this, but had a lot of the same political consciousness uh, that was in a more aggressive group like Public Enemy. And that's really interesting about the whole vibe vitality of the hip-hop scene at this time that you could have people were trying to have political arguments in so many ways and through so many different sounds and uh i think it's important of course and to to think about and talk about a group like public enemy their music is very very urgent and vibrant and necessary but it's valuable to remember that the context of their political statements was actually made richer because they were alongside a group like the Diggable Planets, and it just showed the overall health of the political dialogue in hip-hop, mainstream hip-hop at this time. That is my whole prelude to the number 15 peaking Rebirth of Slick. Here's a clip. The entire hip-hop era was fresh and fact since they started saying Audi. Cuz funk's made fat from right beneath my hood. The pooba of the styles like miles and shit. Like 60s funky worms with waves and perms. Just sending junky rhythms right down your block. We beat to rap what key beat to lock, but I'm cool like that. 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 I'm cool. Queep be the chocolate tap to my raps. She innovates at the sweet cat naps. This just brought me right back. Brought me right back to, but weirdly, it brought me back to, um, like, indie rock that i was also listening to at the same time like totally this song is this song is like a guaranteed sort of like everyone sitting around getting ready to go out someone um rolling a joint on a frisbee because 93 and uh it was just like a guaranteed sort of I mean, it was a little bit of a filler song because we did have the sense, like you were saying, that it wasn't really for us. But Mm -hmm. that beat was so irresistible and the density of it and sort of finding things in it was so irresistible. And my boyfriend at that time was into like actual jazz, like Ornette Coleman style um, and was very interested in. Um, this and us three for like how how the jazz was being um, 
like flowed into the flow. We will get back to that. But this was like, this would go into like um, Radiohead B-side or Luna's California or um, like some early Beck we had going on at the same time as this. Um, And just a lot of people wearing a lot of Baja clothing and, you know, boys with very long hair and... Uh, it just brings me back to like, I can picture the exact dorm room in university and like the time of day and what other people were drinking. We were in a, um, we were in a clearly Canadian Loganberry phase, I believe. (laughs) You know what? I need to end this call. Yeah. I mean, look, that's what was available at the stud. So I mean, says the guy who at a theater party was once doing shots of just Midori. So I have no room to talk. I mean, but like you got punished for that. For real. (laughs) (laughs) Just just by doing it. Oh, yeah. Your teeth are still green. But yeah, this has that um, this has that far side vibe to it. That's like you get the feeling that this is not necessarily for you, but it's not not for you either. And that it is intended to work on a bunch of different levels. Um, But it is a lot more sort of outward facing than De La Soul. So it's interesting to be talking about these two songs or this like range of songs that are kind of under the same umbrella, but may have very different intents Totally. In, the, in the beginning. Um, I also wanted to note this doesn't really have anything to do with anything, but um, I was re-listening to Public Enemy a couple months ago, actually, and realizing that I think they are not giving credit for their wit. And yeah. I just wanted to put that out there that when you listen to like um, like the earlier stuff in particular, there is, um, I mean, sometimes the humor is really dark but it's like there is a there is a wit there and a um pride in the wit that i think it's that part of public enemies catalog is undersold that it's not all well, and i think that yelling I at you was, <laughs> i think that it was actually undersold too because it's harder to dismiss the band as just being angry black men when you have to face the fact that they're witty thoughtful, very reasonable in their political demands. And if you can just cast them as they're just angry, then it's easier for people who don't want to hear it to dismiss them outright. But you're right that there's like, and when I was saying before, I didn't mean that they were like, I know you weren't saying that I was saying this, but let me just clarify that. I don't think that public enemy was just an angry band, but they were just more aggressive in their sound. Like, yeah, for sure. They were not and coming at like nine one one is a joke is not coming at you with the same sort of like relaxed flow as this. No, but then a lot of their message songs also are like chair dancers. So totally. And they are very deliberately, I think trying to jam up your signals with like, I, I feel sort of um, guilty and weird bugging out to this song and yet like well they don't make it so bug outable public enemy but uh, like that's the point that they're forcing you to just like not um put 
what you're thinking about a song on autopilot, but we're not here to talk about Public Enemy today. Maybe in the future, but let us hear I'm from also you. thinking about how these messages in these songs are also, they they work in a sense because they do have these bug out qualities. Like, for instance, the reason I picked the clip from Rebirth of Slick that I did is because it contains the all-time wonderful line, we be to rap what key be to lock. Like, come <laughs> on. Uh-huh. That's amazing. That's yeah. the shit that you are in the rec room at the party. And no matter what you're doing, everyone in the room will stop, shout out that line, and then go back to what they were doing. Because that line is so good. And you wait for it. And like the song also just succeeds as pure fucking awesomeness. And also, who doesn't want to just be like, I'm cool like that. I'm cool like that. It's just you don't have to work hard to memorize it, but it's got a really great attitude that you hope that you can in, that you hope you can endow yourself with. Like the song succeeds as just awesomeness as well. And you're right. Like, don't if they didn't want us to dance to it, they wouldn't make it so danceable. So you have to think, well, OK, now that they've got us dancing. They actually also want us to think. And I love that shit. Yeah, um, it's also good makeout music. I'm just going to leave that here. Um, I'm sure that you're right. I was at this point in my life, not yet on that road, but I'm mm. sure that you're right. Yeah, give it a try. Um, give it a whirl. Report this back. This is also, I'll just, I'll just lay this here and then we can move on. This is making me think about how Lil Nas X is really picking up the baton of a lot of this music in terms of making music that's really easy to enjoy on a superficial level. But the more you listen is really about some pretty provocative things. Yeah, and we are open to a Spiritual Airs episode. So, as I said, let us hear from you. We're at Talk Songs on Twitter, and always come to our Patreon page. We have a lot of fun over there. There's extra stuff, and the community is rad. So, come on by. Patreon.com yeah. slash Mastass. All right, we got one more song left. We do. So, this is the number nine peaking Cantaloupe, parentheses, Flip Fantasia by the group us three which was actually like nine british guys uh who got together and uh made a jazz hip-hop fusion group and if you go to youtube and you look for us three interview there's this really crazy short hbo interview where they're explaining it's like (laughs) so trippy and then they're like and they're also going to be performing on dennis miller live and it's like and you're like, really oh, crazy. God, Dennis Miller live. <laughs> like, it really yeah. is like, oh, you just feel totally destabilized by 90s osity. <laughs> and and the, the, the one white guy that they're interviewing has so much hair. It's just a lot happening. It's an amazing clip. Um, so Cantaloupe is a reference to Cantaloupe Island, which is the song that is being sampled. And uh, it's just really... I think a distinct song that would sound fresh even today, Sarah, even though it's built on a very old song, there's just something about this that I think really works. There's an effortlessness to the groove that is so appealing. And without further ado, number nine, here's a clip. Cantaloupe. Dance as we dip in the melodic sea. Rhythm keeps flowing and drips the MC. Sweet sugar pop, sugar pop, rocks and pop. You don't stop till the sweet beat drops. I shall improve as I stick and move. Vivid poems recited on top of the groove. Smooth, mind, floating like a butterfly. New set of float, sung like a lullaby. Brace yourself as the beat hits you. Dip, trip, hit fantasia. Yeah. 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 
Oh my god. I I never can just listen to a clip. Um <laughs> this I don't know if you remember your first experience with this song. Um but I had been recommended the album I forget by whom I borrowed the CD. Kids ask your parents, brought it back to my dorm room, put it on the changer. Ask your parents. Yep. And like went to sit down on my futon. I sort of like flopped down on my futon and then a recording from Blue Note Records, trap. And I sat up and was like, what the fuck is this? More. Yes. Everything positive. This whole album, I just like lived with it in the changer for fucking three years, probably. You know how I like a pop music trumpet break, and that's a great one. Um this is just like this is the perfect marriage of samples and Rasan Kelly's flow is so sexy. Yes. So sexy. I will jump to that jam, boogie woogie jam and slam all day and into the night. Um and I pulled a clip from uh Got It Going On which is a which is another us three song from the same album that uh I just wanted to um I just wanted to drop that in here uh as uh, I don't know supporting evidence for my claim that um Rasan Kelly could uh Pied Piper me off a cliff I guess with his voice. <laughs> Here's a short clip from Got It Going On and um this is another song that I like just drop little snippets of it into my everyday speech and i think people probably think that's very weird much as they probably think that about everything else i do here's a clip Hey, yo, true, I got it going on. I got it going on. Oh, and then it, my God, it's so good. And then at the end, there's this break and uh, like the sample is like the drum, boom, boom, the drum, boom, boom, and when my answer to a question is the drum. I have to say it like that and try to provide a little um, LP crackle also <laughs> because I'm um, a, you know, fulfilled person who's fun at parties and totally normal. Anyway. I have such a deep affection for any song that will use being a straight A student as a flex. And I would like to apologize. I hate this for myself. To Brian Austin Green for repeatedly over the course of decades making fun of him for rhyming pencil and utensil because, I mean, at worst, he did it because he saw us three do it first. <laughs> oh, but that time I was like, oh, that's unfortunate. You know what? Who cares? I still love the song. Oh, it's so it's so good. But it's really also amazing that like this is the sort of wonderful miracle of pop music and why we do this podcast is the song's ability 
to get a sort of chronically hungover 21-year-old to sit straight up on her lumpy futon and be like, oh. Yeah. And then just like reading the liner notes, listening to it over and over again, like making notes to like go down to the rec X and be like, do you know what these samples are? Can you find me this album? And then I like went to my boyfriend's room and I'm like, do you have X, Y, Z? And he was, like I said, an Ornette Coleman guy. So we didn't have these like piano jazz things and we didn't have the internet really yet back then. So I couldn't look it up, but like this was the intensity of this experience. And, um, I mean, always a pleasure to revisit it, especially for quote work, which this podcast <laughs> seldom feels like, I'm just going to say. Um, but you're so right that there is something really exhilarating about music that forces you to care like this. Yeah. And and I will say, again, to go back to PM Dawn, I really did have that experience with their music because it was so feminine in its masculinity it was just like it was just so genderless in a way and mm-hmm. a, that i found very exciting and again yeah like you just i wanted more i wanted to listen i wanted to think about it i wanted to pay attention and i totally get what you're saying too about the liner notes where you're like okay wait who is this who is this on the background vocals what is it? i have to know more i totally feel you well sarah yeah. i have to say i feel like hippie hop ended up being a fantastic entree into our exploration of beating of beats around the bush i i think so too and um as i said we are here for your comments we are here for your suggestions you can um send us like sound snippets if you want to be heard on the air let us know if we have permission to do that um but you can follow us on twitter and and or dm us that's at talk songs we'd love to have you over on the patreon for more discussion and uh, yeah, upcoming episodes include um, a deep dive into Def Jeff, um, S- Salt and Pepper. What else have we got? We've got a blitz of Salt and Pepper hits. Um, <clears throat> we've got a look at the mysteries of Tone Loke, and we will explain what we mean by that uh, when we get to that episode. <laughs> we mysteries have mysteries of Tone Loke. <laughs> we're we're traveling to Delphi, and we're asking. I don't even know. Ace Ventura, who was kept in a jar in a cave with her Tone Loke. And then when we say, who who brought Tone Loke here? We'll say, nobody. And then a Cyclops will be mad about it. Um, <laughs> and then Tone Loke will grab the underbelly of a giant sheep and ride <laughs> to free. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, we... We've lost it <laughs> again. <laughs> and, 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 and we've got some other episodes coming that will probably also end in this level of chicanery and buffoonery. Um, but again, yes, patreon.com slash Twitter at talk songs. We uh, really want to hear from you. And uh, now I'm going to go listen to some more us three. Me too. Or me three, I guess.
Mark and Sarah Talk About Songs is hosted by Mark Blankenship, that's me, and Sarah D. Bunting. That's me. I also edit the podcast, which is a proud member of the Believe Network. Learn more at BLEAV.com. To learn more about us, submit song requests, get a pop chart reading, or buy a Mastis book, visit our website at MarkandSarahTalkAboutSongs.com. You'll also find all of our social media links there, too. That's Mark and Sarah with an H, TalkAboutSongs.com. And for even more content and access the Mastas Happy Hour, become a Patreon supporter at Patreon.com slash Mastas. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.